Thank you, Dan. Good morning, Trinity Church. And I just, again, want to reiterate the importance of being at members meeting tonight. If you're a member here at Trinity Church, you do not want to miss members meeting tonight. So many things happen at those members meetings. This is where you find out what's going on. If you're waiting for the announcements on Sunday morning to tell you everything that's going on at Trinity Church, you're going to be disappointed because that's not where we do that. We want to be uh, fully you know, transparent with you as far as everything goes. We're going to be supporting some new missionaries. You'll hear about that tonight. Of course, the new deacon. You'll hear about that tonight and all the things that are going on at Trinity Church. So you do not want to miss being there at members' meeting tonight. In that regard, I want to bring a special matter of prayer to you for one of our members, um, Randy and Jenny Paul. Uh, Many of you know Randy and Jenny. Randy and Jenny uh, serve on music team. They come uh, and, and lead us in music once a month or so. And they are leaving today. Uh, for Tennessee uh, to undergo a procedure, to undergo uh, a procedure that will hopefully uh, bring them a child. And so uh, they have been um, praying and wanting and desiring a child for some time, have not been able to have uh, a baby. And so they are heading to Tennessee. They've been cleared to go through the procedure. And so I asked if I asked Randy if we could pray for them this morning, if I could share that with you and uh, pray for them. And uh, he said that would be wonderful. And so would you join me in praying for them even right now? Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and for the truth of who you are. You are the one who blesses all of creation is yours. We come to you bringing our prayers to you because you are the only one who can do all things. I lift up Randy and Jenny to you even right this moment as they are heading uh, to undergo a procedure that will, they are hoping will give them the opportunity to have a child. And we cannot understand everything that's going through their hearts and minds emotionally. Lord, I pray that uh, you would keep their hearts and minds on you, that they would find their contentment and joy and satisfaction in you and your son. But we lift them up to you and we ask, we ask for this procedure to be successful. We ask that this indeed would bring them the opportunity to have children. And we, we rely upon you, we depend upon you, and we give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. We gladly, joyfully submit to your will. As you know, being all wise, you know what is best. And Lord, we give them to you as your children. We know that you love them more than any of us could ever love them. And you want your good for their life. And so we submit to that and we thank you for what you will do. In your name we pray. Amen. We come this morning to Genesis chapter 1, and we spent a couple of weeks on Genesis, and we haven't got out of verse 1 yet, and so today, as best as we can, we're going to make our way through the entirety of chapter 1 all the way to the beginning of chapter 2. If you would, please stand me, stand with me, join me in uh, standing so we can read God's Word together out of honor for God's Word. I'm going to read the entire chapter all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures with me. Look along there as I read, starting in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw the light, that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with the seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our favorite show for a long time, and I'm guessing many of your favorite uh, shows well, our favorite show for a long time was Fixer Upper. We love the show Fixer Upper. Chip, Chip and Joanna Gaines, who, who, who's a fan of Fixer Upper? Everybody's hand goes up. Who's been to the silos? See, if I say silos... You know what I'm talking about because you love Fixer Upper. There's these silos in Waco. It's like a Mecca, like it's a pilgrimage. On our way out here, um, when we moved out to Spokane several years ago, we traveled and we went down the south route. And one of the goals we had was to go to the silos and to see what Chip and Joanna Gaines had built down there. If you have never seen the show, here's the premise. They take, they take a house that is a mess and they fix it up. 
And it's a lot of fun. They have a lot of fun. It's very humorous. Chip is kind of crazy. And so they fix up this house, and then there's a big reveal. At the end of the show, they have a picture, a big picture of what the house used to look like. And the people who own the house, the people who they're doing this, this fixer-upper for, they haven't seen the new house yet. There's this big picture of what the house used to look like, and they, they take it back like a big curtain. They take it back, and there's this reveal where they see the new house, the fixed-up house. And the response is always, Oh my goodness! How did that happen? That's amazing! I never imagined that it would ever look like that. There's this awe that's created by the big reveal. Wow! What amazing artisans Chip and Joanna Gaines are, right? Well, it's a lot of fun. The show's a lot of fun. But it's, it's ama- amazing to me how we can see something like that and we can be in awe of that and we can be excited about that. There's nothing wrong with it, right? It's amazing what somebody can do. But we get so excited about man's ability to make something beautiful. And yet when we come to Genesis 1, most of us, if we're honest, we kind of give a little bit of a yawn, don't we? It's kind of same old, same old. We know the story. This is what we've been told since we were kids. It's kind of boring. I asked a question a couple weeks ago or in your uh, small group questions. When you heard that we were going through the book of Genesis, right? Be honest. Were you a little disappointed? Were you, were you a little like, ah. I think some of us, if we're honest again, we've kind of grown tired of Genesis 1. Maybe we've grown tired by all the debates surrounding Genesis 1. Is there, is there a more debated passage in all of Scripture than Genesis 1? The answer is no. It's the one brought up in just about every conversation, right? Now, I can tell you this. If, if you come to the service this morning, if you come to the sermon this morning, and, and you have your pet theory, or if you have your pet ideas about what Genesis 1 is saying, if, if you're coming this morning hoping that you get the answers in Genesis lecture, you're going to be very disappointed. Very disappointed. I can guarantee you that many of you will leave disappointed today and you say, well, what's different than every other Sunday? How's that different than all the other Sundays, Pastor Paul? Ha, ha, ha. No, we, we know that this passage has a lot of debates and it becomes a pet text for people's theories and speculations. This text is used by many false teachers to get people distracted. Let me, let me give you just a very short word about some of the different attacks on Genesis 1. Let me first give you a word, and this is all, this is all pre-sermon, okay? I'm, I'm going to speed up here. A word about myth. So if you do your research, what you'll find is that there are several ancient cosmologies, Myth stories that seek to give explanation for the origin of the world. Egyptian, Babylonian, Canaanite cosmologies. And these have been held up as a proof that the account here in Genesis 1 should not be taken seriously, but merely the, only the Hebrew version of those origin stories. However, if you do indeed read those myth stories from those ancient texts, what you'll find here in Genesis 1 is something markedly different than those myth stories. In fact, it seems that Moses is purposefully crafting his narrative as a polemic. You know what a polemic is? A polemic is a critical attack. He is 
giving Genesis 1 as a critical attack against pagan idolatry, pagan mythologies. To use a common vernacular, and I, I hesitate to do this because not everybody will know what I'm saying with this maybe, but to, to use a, a common way of talking, at least in my world, in Genesis 1, Moses is dunking on the ancient mythologies. He's posterizing them. You ever, you ever seen the pictures, right, of the guy coming up to like block, and the guy comes up and just dunks on him, and the guy's like, oh, you know. That's what Genesis 1 is doing. He's using a lot of the common language, and it's in the differences that we see the point. He's blowing all of their mythologies apart. Now, a word about literary features. You'll hear often that, well, Genesis 1 is just poetry. Admittedly, Genesis 1 is highly stylized. It is literarily stunning. There's a lot of symmetry. But I, I want you to know, and this is, this is not really up for debate. Genesis 1 has the common Hebrew structure for narrative. This is a narrative, a highly stylized, literary stunning narrative prose. That's what this is that we're looking at. In other words, Moses is intending for his hearers to take this as historical account. What we have here in Genesis 1 is inarguably historical. Moses intends it that way, and that is the way we must take it. By the way, this is the way the rest of the Bible takes it, as historical account. This is the way the Apostle Paul takes it. And this is the way Jesus himself takes it, as historical account account, not to overplay it at all, all of the rest of our Christian doctrine rests upon the historical veracity of Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's not up for debate for a Christian. This is historical account. Now a word about science. Maybe you're hoping, again, for that lecture where we're going to talk about all the science behind the creation account. Listen, I'm the last guy in the world that you want doing that. Uh, we were having a joke the other day with Ed Schlecht. Ed Schlecht's an engineer. You know, he grew up always wondering about how everything works. You know, that scientific mind that wants to know how everything works. Did you know, and I don't think I'm overstating this, I have never once in my life ever stopped to say, I wonder how that works. That is the exact opposite of how my mind works, okay? I'm, I'm not curious. I, I lack curiosity, apparently. So I'm the last guy you want giving the scientific explanation behind creation, you're not going to find here in this text a scientific explanation, scientific language. Genesis 1 is not a science textbook. Now you know that. But that is what it seems to be used for. Because this is all it seems to be used for, what I'm afraid is that people miss the actual point of the text. Or the actual point is quickly set aside. Scientific technicality is not the goal of Moses. He's not writing to combat Charles Darwin. Now his, his text does blow atheistic evolution out of the water. But that's not why he's writing it. The language of Genesis 1 is, again, highly stylized narrative prose accommodating itself to man's vantage point. So what do you mean by that? Well, you, you and I, we're, we're people, we're humanity, and we live on this place called earth. And we observe creation from this very limited vantage point. And so, this morning... Maybe you didn't see it this morning, but in many mornings we will say, did you, did you see the sunrise this morning? 
Did you see the sunrise? Does anybody come and say, well, no, that's, that's, not, that's not correct. That's not correct. The sun didn't rise this morning. Why, why did the sun not rise this morning? Because we know that the sun isn't rising, but rather the earth is rotating. What we observe as the sun rising, we know scientifically is actually the earth rotating. But is it wrong to say the earth rises? No, that's the language we use. God is giving a description of creation, of all things, the creation of all things, in man's language, describing events and the mighty work of God in language and writing that is carefully crafted to present to man, given their perspective, a theology of creation. So, let me give you some summaries. Again, this is, this is kind of pre-sermon. But let me give you some summary statements here. Because of all this, do not try to force Genesis 1 to support your scientific hypothesis or theory. Don't, don't try to use Genesis 1 to support your favorite theory. It's not meant to do that. You'll do damage to the text if you try to do that. Don't change, this is important, second summary statement, don't change or ignore scientific data to rescue Genesis 1. You ever find people doing that? Oh no, we've got to rescue Genesis 1 from the things that we see in science. No, it doesn't need your help. Along with this, scientists, because some of you are indeed scientists, always be ready and willing to submit your ever-changing scientific conclusions, which, by the way, is a contradiction. Have you ever, have you ever, well, science has concluded. No, no, see, that's the whole point of science. It's never concluded. It's never finished. It's always observing. I mean, 150 years ago, they thought they were going to save George Washington by putting leeches on his body and sucking out all his blood. They thought they had it figured out, but they didn't. That's not the way you heal somebody. See, science is not done. Science is observation. So, be willing to submit your ever-changing scientific conclusions to the never-changing Word of God. The fact is, you and I and all the men put together with everything we could discover and accomplish and know, the bigger we build our telescopes, the finer we tune our microscopes, all these things, we could gather all of that knowledge and we stack it up against what God knows. And we will find that everything man knows, all of his accumulated knowledge is a very light thing compared to the knowledge of God. Kind of humbling, isn't it? Kind of humbling when we have to look in the mirror and say, God is big and we are small. And I cannot know everything there is to know. And I think that's what Genesis 1 really does for us. We come to it having to submit ourselves, having to humble ourselves. This leads to another summary conclusion here in my opening remarks. Very important. Very, very important. And I, I'm, as a pastor here, pleading with you. Don't fixate on things that are pure speculation. Don't fixate on speculation. If I could tell you how often I have people coming to me wanting to talk to me about speculative things and they are all excited about things that are just speculation. Bible teachers, self-proclaimed Bible teachers and experts that want to fixate on speculation and build even entire ministries out of it are taking you to the cleaners They're building their kingdoms on your back. They are the false teachers. And you know, false teachers don't come with alarm bells. Did you know that? There there, there aren't sirens that go off when false teaching's going on. And we go, oh yeah, that's a false teacher. No, they're persuasive. And they appeal to something in us that makes us want more. 
Don't fixate on things that are pure speculation. These speculative matters the Scripture speaks on, right? And there are many hard things in Scripture, many hard things in Scripture, but as Peter says of Paul, there are many hard things in Paul, but there are teachers that pervert these things and lead people astray. And that's exactly what you will find. False teachers preying on the weak-minded men and silly women laden with sin is what Scripture says. Don't be one of those. Stop speculating. That kind of speculation is a sign of spiritual unhealth. You're not well. And so, some of us need somebody to love them enough to look them in the face and say, You're not well. You're not doing okay. This speculation is distracting you, leading you down a rabbit hole that will kill your spiritual life. Now, the only thing I left to say on that is, is don't use Genesis 1 to divide from other brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursue unity with one another, right? You're going to sit in your discipling groups this week, and you're going to talk about Genesis 1, and some of you might have some theories, and some of you might have some ideas. And if you use those things to fight and argue with one another, then again, you're missing the point. This is not to be a source of disunity. It is to be unifying It is to be encouraging. It is to show us, Genesis 1 is to show us who our God truly is. Now to the text before us. The text before us starts with a question about the relationship of verse 1 to verse 2. Very quickly. There's a question that looms over verse 2 of Genesis 1. It is this. Where did all this matter come from? Where did all the chaotic matter in verse 2 come from? Well, very quickly, the grammar, grammar and language of these verses do not support the gap theory. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. The idea that the verse, or between verse 1 and verse 2, there is a gap, that God created something in verse 1, and that there was some kind of upheaval or rebellion, and God judged it. What you find in verse 2 is the, the judged earth in chaos. Uh, that is not supported in the language that is used. There are other views of the relationship of verse 1 and verse 2 that support the idea that this matter in verse 2 is some kind of pre-existing eternal matter, existing alongside God. I think this also should be rejected. The form of the word used for create in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this word is only used with God as the subject. It is an act of God. While the word does not explicitly mean ex nihilo, which is what we, what we say ex nihilo means, out of nothing, right? God created all things out of nothing. While this word created doesn't explicitly mean that, it seems to imply it with the context of chapter 1, and it's reinforced. This idea of ex nihilo, uh, creating out of nothing, is reinforced throughout Scripture. Many references that we could give you for that. No, I think to understand the relationship of verse 1 and verse 2, you've got to, again, return to the reason why Moses is writing this. He is writing this as a polemic against uh, pagan idolatry. If we look at other versions of this origin story, what we will find is that the gods of the pagan nations, they make the world out of the dismembered bodies of their foes. The God of a nation is victorious over another God and he dismembers the bodies and he forms the world out of their dismembered bodies. What Moses is trying to say is that that idea is hogwash. In the Canaanite myths, in the Babylonian myths, for instance, the Numa Elish, the threat of the gods or the threat to the gods comes from the chaotic sea the great sea monster resides. But here in verse 2, look at what, what verse 2 says. Look at it. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What we find in verse 2 is that God is in control over the darkness 
and over the chaotic seas. The Spirit of God, pictured here as a mighty wind, broods over the face of the waters. The face of the deep is under darkness, but God stands ready by His mighty Spirit to act. God does not merely respond to the darkness here in Genesis. God owns the darkness. God is in control of the darkness. What we also see here in verse 2 is that the earth, the earth described here as not being formed and not being filled. This description simply, simply gives creation before God acts to form it and to fill it. That's all it's doing there. It's describing matter created by God before he gives it its form and filling. These words, formless and void, are also used in the same way. Jeremiah 4.23, maybe you have that as a cross-reference already. Jeremiah 4.23, these descriptions of without form and void are used by God to describe Israel after he judges her. He says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void and to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So this description that God uses of Israel after she will be judged gives us insight into what's going on here in verse 2. Here it is, very simply. Verse 2 describes an earth that is unable to be inhabited. It is formless and empty. It is a wasteland. It is under darkness. This describes God then making this wasteland into Something that can be inhabited. Formless and void, then, without form and void, will shape the rest of the text before us. He will form creation and fill it. Have you ever seen this before? The six days of creation are really two sets of three. The first three days describes how God forms creation, answering the need in verse 2. It is formless. So God is going to form creation in the first three days. And then in the next three days, he will fill it. So he forms and fills. That takes us to day one. On this day, we see the basic pattern that each day will follow. And we're going to move through these six days very, very quickly, okay? On this day, day one, we see the basic pattern that each day will follow. In each one of these days, don't miss this, in each one of these days, there are seven distinct patterns here, okay? First, there is an announcement. You see that on day one. Day one is the only place that we see all seven of them in kind of perfect order. There is an announcement. And God said. The account of creation is shaped around ten of these announcements. Ten words from God creating all things. You can see it there. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, and verse 29. And God said, and God said, and God said. These ten words are what God uses to create. So with verse 2, we see His Spirit... His mighty spirit hovering, brooding over the face of the deep, of the waters. The spirit of God stands ready to act. And in verse 3, we see his word creating. His spirit and his word create. God said ten words from God in which he creates all things. Next, there is a command Let there be light. In each one of the days of creation, there is a command by God. This command 
is a theme that's picked up in John 1 and 2 Corinthians 4. This command in day 1 of let there be light. This light which will overcome the darkness. Jesus in John 1 is called the light. And the darkness will not overcome it. 2 Corinthians 4. God who has made light shine out of darkness has also shown in our hearts to reveal the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This command, let there be light, shows us that God's command brings new life. If you are a believer here this morning, if you're a believer here this morning, did you know that you have had this event take place in your life where there has been, by His Spirit and by His Word, a command to create in you new life. He has brought light and made the darkness flee away. There has been your own creation moment. And it is just as amazing as the creation of the world. God's announcement and God's command. And then we see the fulfillment of that command in each one of these days. And God said, and let there be, and it was so. What God decrees is what takes place. And then, the fourth feature we see in each one of these days is execution of of the creation. Each one of these days we see, and often we see the separation. God, in the first day, separates light from the darkness. God gives order to the creation is what we see here. God gives order by making several separations. You'll see this all the way through. Kind of giving you the summary of the the whole creation account here. First day, he separates the light from the darkness. Second day, he separates the waters from the waters. Then he separates the land from the earth. Right? Then, he has two creatures he makes. Or he sets the the great light in the sky and the lesser night at night or the lesser uh, light at night. And then he creates two types of beasts. And then God creates beasts on the land and... Mankind. Mankind then has two parts, male and female. So God, through his separation of creation, he is forming it. He's forming creation. And by these separations, he is giving it its boundaries and distinctions. I want to read a quote here from one of the commentaries I read this past week. Modern readers tend to be preoccupied with scientific and historical questions about the origin of the world, whereas the Old Testament, in describing creation, is actually suggesting a moral stance to be adopted toward the natural order. So so these separations and divisions and distinctions are communicating to us the boundaries and, and the distinctions, the natural order that God has given the world. The quote goes on to say, things are the way they are because God made it so, and we as mankind should accept his decree. So we see, first, there is an announcement, and God said, then there's a command, let there be, then there's a fulfillment, and it was so, and then there's an execution. God orders and separates his creation, and by so doing, he forms it. Then there is divine approval or appreciation for what God has done. You will see on many of the days that there's a pronouncement that it is good. So God saw that what he had made, and it was good. Throughout the account, you will see God's approval of what he has done. It is exactly as he would have it. What what we see here is that God enjoys what he has made. And God believes that what he has made is good. It's right. It's exactly what it should be. Have you ever created something? Have you ever made something? I'm not the kind of guy that makes a lot of things. But, but sometimes people with this thing called social media, they'll make something, they'll create something, 
They'll accomplish something, and what do they do? They take a picture of it, and they post it, because they want everybody to see what they've done and what they've accomplished. I built, I built something a couple weeks ago. I built a fence. I built a fence, and I was pretty impressed with my fence. But here's the thing. I don't want anybody to see it. A couple of, a couple of people come over, and I'm like, oh, yeah, don't look at the fence. Don't look at the fence. I, I love it. It's exactly like I want it, but I don't want anybody who knows what they're doing to actually look at it because it's not perfect. God makes... And then he says, it's good. Look at what I've done. I want you to see it. It's exactly as it should be. This is his divine approval and appreciation of what he's made. And then we will see, number six, we will see in each day a subsequent word. God names or blesses his creation. This shows that God is the authority over what he has created. He is naming it. This is a responsibility he will pass on to mankind. Chapter 2. We also see that God will bless his creation. We see the appearance here of this theme, blessing. Causing it to be fruitful. Causing it to produce. This is what blessing in the Old Testament refers to most often. Producing, multiplication of offspring. See, you and I, we talk about accomplishment and achievement. We talk about all the things that we have done. But God is the one who blesses. God is the one who creates. God is the one who makes it possible. God blesses and causes the ground to produce and life to reproduce. And then, each day, there's a number attached. And you'll see this formula. The evening and the morning, first day. Now, probably the most debated word in this entire section is the word for day, translated day, the Hebrew word yom. Now, real quick, here's why this means 24, in my opinion, here's why this means uh, 24-hour periods, 24-hour literal days. Number one, the word most normally used for day is this word for a literal 24-hour period. Number two, even more so when the, the day or the word yom is given a number with it. So when you give a number to this word, this is all it can really mean. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament. Number three, the mention of morning and evening suggests a normal day. Number four, the seven days of the week are taken from this pattern of seven days. The six days of creation and the seventh day where God rests. And number five, from the fourth day on, and we might talk about that here in a second, from the fourth day on, we see that the lights in the sky, the sun and the moon given, placed in the sky, is for days and months and seasons, literal days. Which then you ask, well, how did they have days before Day number four. We'll get to that hopefully in a second. Day number two. So day number one gives us this really tight, really tight uh, literary pattern. Seven things that we see in each one of these days. Day number two. Day number two gives us the creation of the sky. Now in the King James Version that you may have grown up with, it's, it's translated firmament, which implies a hard dome-like structure which holds the waters. The clouds, the waters above, are simply the clouds where water comes down to the earth. This word for expanse, again, has caused quite a bit of debate. One creationist, uh, who you may know, you may not know, has taught for a lot of years that this passage actually teaches that there is indeed a canopy, it was indeed a canopy of water held back by some, something like a glass dome, And this is what accounts for the long lifespan of early dwellers of the earth because of the oxygen-rich atmosphere that would have been created. Speculation. Could it be true? I don't know. Speculation. Don't get caught up with it. He goes on to say, this is what created the flood then. The dome breaks and the deluge of water comes down and this is how we get the flood. It all makes sense, except it's more than the text is telling us. The plainest reading of the text here in day two, 
just simply explains to us that on the second day, God creates the sky, the expanse, the sky between the clouds above, which water comes down from, and the waters below. Notice that on this day, there is no pronouncement of good. That's not because it doesn't meet God's standard or God's approval, but rather the separation involving waters will be concluded on day number three. So day number three. Here we see on day number three that there's a further division of the waters as they are separated from the land. The waters are gathered in one place so that the land appears. The separation of the dry land from the waters. Here's where you have God's pronouncement that it was good. The waters, the separation of the waters is indeed good. But that pronouncement does not end the day. Here on day three, we have a second pronouncement. God says, first, that the waters and the land be separated. Then he gives a second pronouncement. On day three, look at it there. It says, and God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So here, on day three, God causes the earth to bring forth vegetation. This vegetation is seen as that which will make life on land sustainable. We have here also our first mention of seed. Seed. As God gives his creation the ability to reproduce seed according to their kind. This reproduction ability is new to the story of creation. Again, if we got into all the cosmologies and mythologies of the ancient world, what we would see is that the vegetation is the result of of gods having intercourse together and causing the land to be fertile. That's not what we see in the description here of Genesis 1. We also see that God, the God of Israel, provides food for the inhabitants of earth while the gods of the pagans demand provision. God is the giver. He is the provider, not the other way around. And with day three, we see God's pronouncement of good as the close of the forming of creation. Now, days four through six, the filling. Day four, this day corresponds to what, is, what was formed on day one. God has already made a divine distinction between light and darkness, but now he puts in the sky two lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. And then, as almost an afterthought, he throws in the stars. Did you catch that? And the stars. Again, there's intentional polemic happening here regarding the sun and the moon and the stars. The ancient pagan uh, religions revered the sun and moon as deities. Egypt, which Israel had just come out of, held the sun as their God. The stars play a significant role in the worship of the pagan nation surrounding Israel. But here, in Genesis 1, they are not even given the honor of being named. They are simply called the greater light and the lesser light. God is seen as the one who ordains the sun and the moon and the stars. Genesis 1 shows us that God created all and he is the one that gives the sun and the moon its place. I'm skipping ahead here. Day 5. Day 5. God will fill the waters and the sky. God will fill the waters and the sky which he has formed. He will put the birds in the expanse. They will fly across the sky, across the expanse, which again kind of gives idea that this is not just some big shiny dome. He will also fill the oceans, the seas, with all that swarm in it. And in here, there's, there's an interesting note where it says that God creates the great sea creatures Ancient myths speak of powerful sea monsters like Leviathan and Rahab, sea serpent-like creatures that were terrifying and terrible. Here it speaks of them as the creation of God. Again, they are mentioned as inconsequential in relationship to God to communicate his power and sovereignty over them. 
and over the nations where they are, where they are emphasized and promoted. This day is also the entrance of the first living creatures into God's creation. It is here with those first living creatures we hear God's first words, a blessing. God blessed them, verse 22, and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. This is God's first words, a blessing to the living creatures. And, and with all of that, with that, we see all three themes. The three themes we talked about in our overview of Genesis Land, seed, and blessing, we see all three of them find their origin here in Genesis 1. Land, seed, and blessing will shape the story of redemption. And then day six. Day six. You're like, I didn't ever think we were going to get here. Day six. This day is the final day of filling. God has filled the waters and the skies. Now he turns to fill the earth with animals. He fills the earth with living creatures according to their kinds and gives three designations, the livestock, the creeping things, and the beasts. Some of us are like, well, did he have to make the creeping things? Livestock and beasts, okay, but the creeping things. It's at this point in the narrative that God then, the narrative describes something entirely unique in the story. When God fills the land with the beasts... Then, verse number 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. This picture is a divine deliberation by God. This, this is meant to emphasize and accentuate this particular creative act. Something significant is taking place. You see, throughout we've had, And God said, And God said, And God said, And God said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to spend time on the image of God. We're not going to try to do that this week. God makes man in his image. Notice to this point, though, that plants and the fruit trees reproduce according to their kinds. The fish and the birds reproduce according to their kinds. Land animals according to their kinds. But man, man is not, man is not designed that way. No, it says man is made in the image and likeness of God. We are made like God. The crowning achievement of his creation and the conclusion of God's work, the creation of mankind. And his first words, don't miss this, his first words to mankind are words of blessing. God's first words to mankind are words of blessing. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now on day seven, day seven, chapter two, verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rests from his work on the seventh day. This is not because God is tired or exhausted from all the work. This day also doesn't have limits like the other days. It is an ongoing reality. God rests from his work. This is saying that God is resting, not because he is tired, but because he is done. He has finished his work. And this goes along with the divine approval there on the sixth day. Did you see it there? Throughout the entire days of creation... It says that God saw what he had made and it was good. But on the sixth day, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God is finished with his work and it is exactly as it should be. He has executed his work perfectly. And he declares upon the finishing of his work, he declares The seventh day, which is not a normal, typical day. It is an ongoing reality. He declares this day to be holy. Now, upon completion of creation, you might expect a place to be be consecrated, like a temple, right? That's what you would do in in a pagan world. You would build a temple to your God and have pictures of your God and images of your God. That's not what God does. He doesn't consecrate a temple. Why? Because the earth is his temple. And he has already placed his image in his temple. Mankind is that image meant to reflect him. 
He does not consecrate a place. No, he consecrates a time. This is what Sabbath is meant to communicate. All is as it should be. God is in his rightful place and his creation is under his command. Under his sovereign and wise and good command, creation bows to its creator. And with that, what we see, man, there's so much here. What, what, what we see very simply is that Genesis 1, don't miss this. If, 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 you, if you're always focused on scientific debate and all that, you're going to miss this. Genesis 1 is a call to worship. That's what Genesis 1 is. It's a call to worship. Three, three really quick points here on this call to worship. Number one, Genesis 1 tells us that God is great. Speaks to us of the greatness of God. Genesis 1 tells us that our God is not to be compared to other gods. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth. Naturalistic, atheistic evolution is false. Pantheism, the idea that God is creation, is false. Polytheism, the belief that there are many gods, is false. Humanism, the belief that man is God, is false. Materialism, the belief that material universe is all that exists, this is false. Dualism. Dualism is this idea that there's a spiritual and evil force of equal power combating, warring against one another. Think, think Star Wars. That's false. There's no good and evil trying to win the day. No, God, God owns the darkness. It's all his. Now, you, you may not be able to get, we may not be able to get our mind around that, but God names the darkness. He, he owns it all. There is no competition. The evil forces exist because God says they do. He's not reacting and responding and trying to rescue his creation from all the things that have happened outside of his control. No, no. No, everything is as he's ordained it. There's also this idea that the spiritual is good and material is bad. Well, Genesis 1 blows that idea out of the water as well. When Jesus put on flesh, when Jesus put on flesh, this creation that he put on was good. Sometimes people will say, well, to err is human. No, it's not. No, it's not. To err is not human. You know what real human looks like? Real human looks like Jesus. And he does not err. That's what humanity is meant to look like. We see that God is great. We also see that he is good. And what he has made is good. This is kind of piggybacking on what I just said about material universe. God is good, and what he has made is good. Can I just simply ask this question very quickly? Do we have eyes to see his goodness? As I was like quickly, like at breakneck speed, trying to go through all those days, right? But we we look at all of these days, how amazing God's creation is. Do we have eyes to see his goodness? Do we have eyes to to wonder and be in awe of his goodness? I mean, this isn't just some television show where they fix up an old house. He created everything out of nothing. And he made it good. Very good. Are we in awe of him? G.K. Chesterton has this quote. He's talking about children and their ability to enjoy. Maybe you've lost that ability to enjoy. Listen to what he says. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. You ever ever witnessed that? 
Your kid wants to do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. And you're like, I can't do it again. I throw my kids on the bed. William and Owen, they come in the room and they want to get thrown on the bed. It's a Saturday morning ritual, right? Come here. Throw. And how many times? Do it again, Dad. Do it again. Do it again. And man, I'm in for like two or three. But after a while, I can't do it anymore. And it kind of gets boring and monotonous and old. Maybe they throw the ball or push the car. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. They always say do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people, listen, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible, he goes on to say, that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It it may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old. And our father is younger than we. You hear what that's saying? We get tired of creation. I love, I love my wife. I'm, I, I try not to talk about my family, but now twice I've talked about my family. And I've talked about my fence at home. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> you know why I love my wife? I'm not going to look at her. Because she gets excited about so many things. Like when we're driving and the moon is outside, she's like, oh, look at the moon! And I'm just like, it was there yesterday. It was there. I mean, there's that excitement. There's that awe. There's that wonder. There's that, there's that glorying in what has been made. We've lost that. I'm afraid we, we live in darkness, don't we? We prefer darkness rather than light. We've lost our wonder. We've lost our awe. We see that God is great. We see that he is good and what he has made is good. To be enjoyed. To be wondered at. And the grace, number three, last point, the grace of his rest should be our aim. The grace of his rest should be our aim. When we talk about rest, oftentimes people just debate about Sabbatarian and whether we should meet on Saturday or whether Sunday is the new Sabbath and blah, 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 blah. People that argue about such things have lost, they've lost the point. Hebrews 4 actually tells us how to understand Sabbath. Did you know the scripture actually tells us how to understand Sabbath? Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, talking about the people of Israel in the wilderness, if Joshua had given them rest in the land that he brought them into, if Joshua had accomplished that rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Do you hear what it's saying? God's grace, the grace of his rest, that is our aim. His pronouncement of very good. This is what he said about Jesus Christ in his work. We are to find our rest in identity with Jesus Christ. His pronouncement of very good is found in the identity of a son. It's in him, he says, I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. It is good. This is exactly as it should be. Have you rested? Have you rested from your work to gain God's approval through the work? Have you rested? Have you rested from your work to gain God's approval through the work of his son? God has accomplished perfect rest in Jesus Christ. And he says it is very good. I I wonder if this is the way we think of ourselves. Do you see yourself in your life under the pronouncement of God's approval? 
Or do you see your works as still trying to gain God's approval or or God's appreciation? No, He's already accomplished your rest. It's in Christ. That is where we cease from our work and enjoy His. That's what Sabbath means. So indeed, we don't rest on one day a week. We rest every day. It's ongoing. We rest. And we look to that final rest. Are you at rest even this morning? When you think of God, is it, is it a glorying in what God has accomplished for you and His Son, Jesus Christ? Or are you still working to gain His favor, His approval, Rest in Christ. His death and his resurrection is sufficient. His work is perfect. It is done. It is finished. It is very good. He is our rest. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this work, for the work of creation and what it tells us, what it teaches us, this call to worship. We thank you for everything that it lays out for us. I pray that you would rescue us. Rescue us from distraction, speculation, missing the point. And I pray that we would run from this account of creation to the new creation which you have promised in your Son, Jesus Christ, where we will gather around Him in a new heavens and a new earth, giving Him glory, that we would right now find our rest in Jesus. Not in what we can accomplish but in what he has already accomplished. And I pray that you would give us that awe and wonder to love all that you have made and to love you through all that you have made. Give us a deep, profound love and appreciation for your creation, what you have made and given us to enjoy. Let us use it to worship you. We pray for your glory in your name. Amen.